Well, really good to see all of you here this morning. If you want to find your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, uh, if you're new here today, uh, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it is an absolute delight to have you with us this morning. We are going through the Gospel of Mark and our sermons, and uh, we are at Mark chapter 13. So if you want to find your way there. Now, with starting a school, do you remember when you were in elementary school? Remember all the fun that was had there? And perhaps you would have this occasion where the teacher would say this. Hey, listen, I'm going to step out uh, for a few minutes, but I'll be coming back. I want you to be working on that assignment that I just gave you, okay? Now, I have some vivid memories of sixth grade being in Mr. Hire's classroom, and uh, he would do just that. He'd kind of teach us some stuff, and then he'd give us an assignment, and he'd say, listen, uh, I'm going to be out for a little bit here. I want you to be working hard on this, and I'll be back in a little bit. Okay, so he'd take off, and wouldn't you know it? You know, there were some of us that were really trying to dive into the material, learn all that we could, and, you know, seeing the nuances of understanding and from his lecture. But I want you to know I was appalled by some of my classmates, you know. <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden, lawlessness broke out, and sometimes even pandemonium. They would, like, make paper squares and spit wads and stuff, and... And not like I wasn't always participating in some of this stuff, but then things could get out of hand. In fact, the closer we got to summer vacation, the worse things would get. I mean, kids would be standing on their desks, throwing paper all around. We had these like rats that we were observing for science class. So some of these kids would terrorize the rats, you know what I'm saying? And it, chaos would be kind of breaking out, okay? It was pandemonium. And all of a sudden, guess who would appear? Oh, Mr. Hire was there. And if you were standing on your desk, you were then soon standing in the principal's office. If you weren't in your seat, you know, because you were out messing around with those rats and poking them with a pencil or whatever you're doing, guess what? You were in the hot seat with him. Sometimes he would check our assignments, like how much we had gotten done. If you hadn't started, guess what? You were going to have more homework. You know, we would we realize, you know, Mr. Hyde come back, and I had at an early age the experiences of what that looked like when, surprise! He actually did show back up. And some of us weren't ready and were shocked, like, oh, ha-ha, there you are. But it's one thing about your teacher saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to come back. It's a whole other deal when it comes to Jesus Christ, who assures us that he is returning. And as we have seen from last week in Mark chapter 13, where we have walked through what Jesus says is most important for us to know about the future, I've got a question for you. Are you ready for his return? Are you? Remember in Mark chapter 13, verse 4, Jesus had said, listen, you see that temple? And they were pointing out how beautiful the temple is and all those massive stones. And Jesus says, it's all going to be torn down. And they're like, what? How is that possible? And that's why they asked that question, verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? They're asking about the end times and what's going to happen. And Jesus has to tell them much about what lies ahead in the future. You see, like we saw last week, the Jewish people were waiting for one appearance of the Messiah, where they were really focused on a savior who was actually a military conqueror, someone who is going to clear out Rome and establish the reign of King David, someone who's going to be in the line of King David, and that's what they saw as their salvation, getting rid of Rome, having a ruler, a leader among them who was of the line of David. 
What Jesus needed to help them understand is actually there are two comings of the Christ, of the Christos, the Messiah. There's the first coming where he comes as a suffering savior, like we see in Isaiah chapter 53, one who is going to bear our iniquity, who bears our sins in his body, who be, who will be the payment for sin, who will rise again. But there is a second coming. Between the first coming, there is going to be a significant gap. The church age, where the gospel is going to go forth, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel that Jesus is the promised Messiah, gives forgiveness of sins, that by virtue of his resurrected life, can give you genuine, authentic, spiritual life. But there is going to be a return. The first time he came as a suffering servant, the second time as the conquering king. He is currently reigning in the hearts and the lives of those who truly know him, who follow him, who are engaged in his kingdom work. But he has promised to come back. So how are we to live in light of Christ's second coming. If you missed last week, let me encourage you, go to our website or go to Spotify and just pull up the Fellowship Bible Church um, uh, where you can see where we have those messages. Because Mark 13 and its parallels in Luke and Matthew are rarely ever taught. Chances are you have never heard that passage taught. And yet it is critically important for the disciples for what they should know so that they will live appropriately and accordingly. It was true of them, and it's especially true of us now. So how do we live in light of Jesus Christ's second coming? There are three priorities that Jesus gives us. And the first is that we are looking to his return. He says, verse 23, he says, But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. I don't want you to be misled. I don't want you to be tricked. I have told you everything you need to know, and I have done it in advance. Now, many students of prophecy and scholars believe, as you look at the, all the scriptures being put together, that there is an event that's going to take place where the Christians, those who truly know Christ and believe in him, are going to be raptured. They're going to be taken up, and they're going to meet the Lord in the air, and you see this like in First Thessalonians chapter 4, like verse 13, all the way through 5.11, where they will be meet with him, and this will begin a seven-year period of tribulation. And that's what he is about to refer to. He is going to talk about this great tribulation. In fact, that's what we saw last week. There are going to be certain events that you will know are going to be announcing the arrival of Jesus. And if you're like, well, what does that look like? What does Jesus' second coming really look like? Well, take a look. I mean, this is powerful. This is Jesus himself telling us about his second coming. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. He says, but in those days, what days are those? Those days of the great tribulation. Do you remember when he talks about these events? There is going to be one central event. It's called the abomination of desolation. You see that in verse 14 in chapter 13? Remember from last week? This is the event that'll take place where this world ruler who gives 
protection to Israel, to the Jewish people, and likely even believers in Christ, in the midpoint, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, just like it's talked about in Daniel chapter 9, he's going to flip, and he is then going to become the great persecutor of the Jews and of Jewish believers and of Christians. And he's going to set himself up as God in this restored temple that will happen in these end times. And he will demand to be worshipped. And he's going to bring about a great persecution. There are going to be false Christs that are going to be arising. There are going to be horrific events that are going to be taking place. Jesus says, but in those days after that tribulation, there's going to be all this cosmic disorder, these phenomena that's going to take place. And he's referencing like Isaiah 13.10 or Isaiah 34.4. There's going to be these cosmic disturbances that are going to immediately precede the coming of Jesus. And then there he is. Look at verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. They will see him just as promised. And notice how Jesus refers to himself, the Son of Man. So often, the eternal Son of God, who entered into humanity, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, speaking of humiliation, emphasizing his humanity. He's both fully God and truly man. And he says, and they will see him coming in the clouds with great power and glory. This is exactly what Daniel 7 prophesied. This isn't the clouds like you and I see in the sky today. This is the cloud of God's Shekinah glory. It is powerful, brilliant, and it speaks of the presence of God, and they will see him. People that mocked him, didn't believe in him, thought that's just a joke. They will see him, the guaranteed return of Jesus. And notice what he says in verse 27. And then he... Speaking of the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. So the Son of Man is coming, the eternal Son of God. And as he comes, then he sends forth his angels and they are going to be the great gatherers. They are going to gather all of the unbelievers, the Christ rejectors, They will be gathered for a judgment that is to come with his coming. But they will also be gathering the believers. The believers, for instance, that uh, came to Christ through the 144,000 witnesses that you see in Revelation 7. They will gather together those who came to Christ through the angelic proclamation of the gospel that we see in the book of Revelation. They will gather the Old Testament saints. Their souls will be coming. They will then receive a resurrected body. They will gather together those who had died for their testimony of Jesus. They will receive these bodies and they will be gathered together. This is the magnificent event that brings about the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And you can read about it like in Revelation chapter 19. You will see the return of Christ. But I want you to know that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the return of Jesus. This is something that he has been promising. Like even like 530 BC, in the book of Daniel, God gives Daniel this vision and has him record it. 
Listen to this, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He's coming back. His kingdom will be established. And what will happen is that Antichrist, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be Satan who will be bound for a thousand years. And you see this in Revelation chapter 20, like verses 1 through 6. Christ will reign on this earth for a thousand years. He is going to be reigning. The peace, the prosperity, all of the hope, the worship of the nations coming to focal point on Jesus Christ is going to have a literal, not a figurative, a literal fulfillment. And Jesus says, you can guarantee it. And you and I, you know how we live in light of Christ's second coming? We're looking for the return of Jesus. You want to know the reality of it? Most Christians rarely give a thought to the return of Jesus. I mean, when's the last time you've really given some consideration or even like, this is my hope, his return? Jesus says, I want you living in light of my return. That's what this looks like. That's what we're to do. We're looking for his return. There's another priority that Jesus gives us, and that is we are trusting in his word. Look at verse 28. Jesus says this, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. So Jesus is telling a parable. This is one of Jesus' most effective teaching tools. A parable means to lay alongside. And so what Jesus would do is he would take something they knew very well, like fig trees, and when they blossomed, and something they didn't understand very well, and that is his second coming. And he says, you know, you know that summer is just about to come when you see figs on a fig tree. Now, it took about three years for a a tree, a fig tree to, to grow up to become productive, and fig trees gave fruit twice a year. In the spring, when it was, it was all leafed out and the figs started to appear, Everyone in Israel knew summer is about to come. And Jesus says, just like you would know by the appearance of figs on the fig tree that summer's about to come, when you see these things happening, you can know that he is right at the door. He is near. I am right there. I am coming back. And when he says these things, what is he talking about? He's talking about those who are going to be in that seven-year tribulation period of time, specifically the abomination of desolation, This, all of these people calling out about these false Christs that he's here, there, and everywhere, and this massive persecution. Jesus says, those are the signs. It's like figs in a fig tree. You know that I am right at the door. I am just about ready to come. In fact, it will be a three-and-a-half-year period of time. And then notice what he says. 
Verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. He says, this generation. Who, who is that generation? Well, he's saying, this generation, those who are in the generation that see and experience these tribulations, this abomination of desolation, this massive persecution, who are seeing all of these false claims about Christ being here and there. He says, it's that generation. He says, all of these things. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And you're like, okay, how do we know that for certain? How do we really know it's going to happen this way? I mean, there's a lot writing on this, right? Well, let's see what Jesus has to say. This is how we know. Look at verse 32. He says, verse 31, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Jesus says, this world is temporary, but my word, it's infallible. It's completely trustworthy. Heaven and earth will be burned up, pass away. There'll be a new heavens and a new earth. But my word, my word is eternal. It will not pass away. It is impossible for God's words to be altered. This isn't the first time that Jesus makes such radical statements. Remember when he went through the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus said this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Every single thing that I have said is going to happen. You can count on it. It is absolutely trustworthy. And I want you to know for the disciples, they needed to know that. Because they were putting 100% of their faith in God and his revealed word. It was going to cost them. And the guys he's originally presenting to, all of them, except for one, it's going to cost them their lives. You better be sure you've got it right. Can God's word be trusted? Absolutely. And the same is true for you. There is everything riding on what you're doing with the words God has given. Are you truly trusting in him or are you, and his word, or are you like, eh, I'm going to kind of pick and choose, or I'm not really sure about that, so I'm just going to avoid it all together. You know, one of the marvels of the internet age is the use of algorithms. And uh, how algorithms work uh, is that they're like basically computer codes that look at your past interests and your past searches and the things that you click on, and then they kind of keep feeding you more of the same, okay? So uh, you see this like in advertising. If you like click on something like for dog food, okay, because you've got a pet at home, all of a sudden you're going to find lots of things about pets, you know, and grooming pets and food and all these different things. And you're like, gee, I, ha I happen to be thinking about dogs and dog food and stuff, and there's ads everywhere on it. I want you to know... That's by design. That's just ads. But guess what? It happens with all of your internet experiences, including 
the news. For instance, we kind of assume that our newsfeed is going to tell us the things that are most important and what's really going on in society. But that no longer is the case. So if you're getting your news from the internet, or worse, uh, from Facebook, okay, guess what? That shapes your understanding of reality. It helps us to explain, like, how can there be such a great divide in America? It's as if we were like, there's two different stories and two different realities, and it seems to be getting worse. That's because whatever you click on, you're going to see more of. And so there's a segment of the population that thinks that, like, Kanye West and his next social media little deal that he does, why that's actually perhaps one of the most important things going on in the world. And they're talking about it. And they're seeing more and more stories about it. But you know what? They're missing out on the most significant events that are even taking place. And that's because algorithms. You like that? You keep clicking on that? Here's more of the same, more of the same. You don't like that? You never click on that? You'll never hear about those things. Those things just kind of fade away. Well, you know what? There are a lot of Christians today that are doing that with their Bibles. They're picking and choosing the things that they want to see featured in what they're reading, if they're reading. And there's other stuff like, don't want that. So for instance, I really like what God has to say about love in 1 Corinthians 13. Every wedding will feature these verses. They mean so much to me. I love it. It's beautiful. It's powerful. It's inspirational. But you know what? I don't really like what God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What he says about sexual morality and homosexuality and covetousness and drunkenness, like, ugh, that doesn't work. That's not politically correct. And people shouldn't even be saying those things. I'm going to avoid that. I, I'm not going there. I, I like the beautiful story of creation. But the end times, God's great judgment, not so much. I'm going to avoid it. And so what happens is, we only refer or look up or read the things that we want to hear. We'll only preach the things like, wow, this is what really helps people in their everyday life and this other stuff. I don't know, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to jump over it. And we have the case now of millions and millions of Christians who never hear things like what Jesus has to say about the importance of living in light of his second coming. And Jesus says this, you know, you don't even know when I'm going to return. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we do expository preaching at Fellowship Bible Church. We go passage by passage, book by book. We believe, we actually believe that God's transformation comes through his revelation as the Spirit of God does the work of God in his people. It's not about me. It's not about a personality. It's about God and his word. We believe his truth is what brings transformation. And that's based on verses like this. Jesus says this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But know this, verse 32, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. He's saying, no one will know the day of my return. Not the angels, the angels who are around the throne, the angels, like according to the book of Hebrews, that are rendering service to those who believe The angels that God is using in significant ways, they don't actually know about the return of Jesus. But notice what else he said. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor, 
uh-oh, the son, but the father alone. Wait a second, how does that work? How does Jesus not know something? Well, let me tell you. You see, the eternal son of God, he entered into humanity. He took on the form of a human, actually experienced conception, was born. I mean, we celebrated at Christmas. He grew up as a child. He experienced everything that humanity has to offer of actually being in a body. And he, at the same time, the eternal son of God set aside the divine use of all of his prerogatives that he had, including knowledge or the free exercise of all the powers that he has as the eternal son of God. You see this in Philippians chapter 2. It's referred to as this great humiliation that Christ set aside these divine prerogatives. And we see that. What he did, he did only what the Father revealed and only what the Spirit was calling him to and leading him to do. Yet, there are plenty of times that we see, like omniscience. He knew what people were thinking. He knew what was about to come. He could speak of things that were in the future, like he's doing here. He demonstrated his power through his miracles. He demonstrated in in so many ways his deity. But all of that, he did completely yielded to his Father. When he is resurrected and he ascends to heaven, he then experiences the resumed knowledge that he had prior to the, to the incarnation. But Jesus says, you know, while I'm on this earth, notice he says, not even the Son, but the Father alone. And yet, this is such a powerful statement. There are people, Christians, that have now for 2,000 years been making predictions about the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the world. The first major one came with three Christian theologians, and they picked the year 500. Pretty arbitrary. Uh, one of them did something rather fanciful with the uh, dimensions of Noah's Ark, which is rather bizarre, but whatever. They picked 500. But what happened? 500 AD came and went. Jesus didn't return. Well, they like, you know what? They picked what's referred to as the Millennium Apocalypse. The year 1000, January 1st, Jesus comes back, the world ends. And there were multiple uh, Christian clerics that were making this prediction. And in fact, it seemed as if the world was waiting, like this just kind of made sense. But January 1st came and went, and guess what? No Jesus and no end of the world. They had to quickly scramble, like, what happened? Oh, we made a mistake. It's not his birth. It must be his death. It's just got to be, right? We need at least 33 more years, right? This isn't looking good. But guess what happened 33 years later? Jesus didn't come back, and there was no end of the world. Let me give you some others. Charles Taze Russell. He was exposed to the teachings of William Miller, who founded the Seventh-day Adventists. And he got the idea that he'll start his own group. You're familiar with it as the Jehovah Witnesses. And he picked the date of 1874 for Christ. Uh, He referred to it as this invisible spiritual return. But it didn't work, and obviously there wasn't a return. And so Jehovah Witnesses then changed it to 1914. And they're saying, well, what's going on is this Christ's spiritual return. And they kind of shifted dates. And by the way, I've been reading some testimonies of folks that have come out of the cult of Jehovah Witnesses. 
And when they really wrestle with this false prophecy and they see this continual denial of Jesus Christ and yet his deity on display, God rescues them and brings them out. Let me give you some more, though. Herbert W. Armstrong referred to himself as the pastor general and self-proclaimed apostle of the Radio Church of God, and then he changed it to make it all-encompassing, the Worldwide Church of God. He selected a year of Christ's return, and that was 1975. Didn't happen. Or here's one. I'm sure you're familiar with this one. Harold Camping owned 55 radio stations. He advertised on over 6,000 billboards all around the United States announcing that May 21st, you remember that? May 21st, 2011, Christ is returning. He says, the Bible guarantees it. Well, guess what? May 21st, 2011 came and went. No end of the world, no Jesus. But that did a lot of damage to the cause of Christ when you got this sort of stuff taking place. Friends, when you hear people saying, oh, this is the date. Oh, that person's the Antichrist. Yeah, man, that makes good fodder for when you're going to the grocery store and you're about ready to check out, you know, and they want you to buy that little, little magazine there. You just stay away. Stay away. Jesus said, you know what? No one knows. How are we to live in light of Jesus' second coming? We're looking for his return. We're trusting in his word. And there's one more priority that Jesus gives that's critically important. We're watching and working in his kingdom. Look what he says. He says, beginning in verse um, 33, he says, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Let me tell you what's going to happen. It's like a landowner, and he's going to go away on a journey. And notice, I've actually underlined this. He puts his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task. Every single one of the servants of the master has been assigned a task to do while he's away, including... The doorkeeper, and this would be a kind of an esteemed position. You would be at the front of the gate. You'd be watching for bad guys who might want to cause a little bit of problems. But you were also looking for the master who is going to return and to welcome him, to open the gate for him. And he says, that's what's about to happen. I'm going away. I'm the master. I have given each one of my disciples something to do. And he's pointing out exactly that. I've commanded the doorkeeper, stay on the alert. You know, you've got a responsibility given by the master. He's entrusted us not only stewardship of finances, but stewardship of our life. And he's given you something to do. And you're like, well, okay, whoa, this is pretty important to Jesus. What might that work be that he's assigned? Well, let me give you some examples. For instance, he has given us the work to proclaim the gospel, evangelism. You and I are to engage the people in our lives, the people of the world, with the good news about Jesus and his kingdom. It's one of the things we are commissioned to do. 
we're looking to have spiritual conversations with people, family members, friends, folks in our community, in our neighborhood, at school, on our team, at work. Why? Because it is the work that has been assigned by the master. Another work that he's been given us is that we are to make disciples of all the nations. You're like, okay, what is that? Well, we talk about discipleship a lot. It's the intentional and relational process of maturing Christ-centered believers and mobilizing them for ministry. We're to be involved in helping people come to know Christ and to grow deep in him so that there is a residual reaching out. They experience the fullness of maturity. That is a work that all of the church has been given at every age. And another work that he's given us is that, you know what? We represent Christ to this generation. We are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Oftentimes what people think about Jesus Christ is what they think about his people. They're forming their assessment about God and how important Jesus really is by the lives of those who say, I know him and I follow him. And what would motivate us to do this? To really engage in his work? Well, you know, because so many of you are fully engaged in his work. What motivates you? Love. It's a love for God, a love for his word, and a love for people. And you move forward. And Jesus says, verse 35, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. He says, What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. He says, you don't know. And he gives these four, three-hour periods of time. And each, and this is how the Romans kept time, each one has like a little ending point. And that's what he's referring to. He says, but you don't really know when he's coming back. You just know that he's called you to be ready, that you are engaged in his work. But notice how he highlights he doesn't want to find you asleep where you've just kind of like moved into some sort of spiritual complacency. You're distracted. You're just flat out just slumbering. You're just kind of non-existent. You know, sleep can be pretty dangerous. For instance, if you fall asleep driving your vehicle, that's where we're going to get some pretty serious wreckage. Some of the most horrific car accidents happen with just... Just that, you know, I'm I'm really tired, just kind of dozing. If I just close my eyes for one second, I'll have all the energy that I need. And you slip off and sleep. And you cause a lot of wreckage. Or if you're a babysitter, and you've been entrusted to the care of that child, but it's been a long week at school, and plus you stayed up till 3 o'clock at the sleepover last night, and you're tired, and you're just, I'm just going to lay down on the couch just for a little bit. That little kid, he's just right there. He's going to be fine. And you pass out. And Junior makes his way to the street and starts playing in the busy road. You fell asleep and you missed out on the responsibility, the job that was given you. Friends, if you're uh, feeling like you're a little tired while you're driving, would you do us all a favor? We want you here. Would you pull over, take a nap, have someone else drive? But friends, if you're going through this life and you're kind of in a spiritual slumber, friends, There's great consequence to that. All sorts of disasters take place because you are not fulfilling the role God has entrusted to you. You're asleep. You're slumbering away. 
You're distracted. You're, you're trying to entertain yourself. Jesus, when he was talking about this, it's a, as it's recorded in Luke, he says in Luke 21, verse 34 through 36, listen to these words. He says, be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation, like you've lost your moral compass and drunkenness and the, and this one really got me, the worries of life. And that the day not come upon you suddenly like a trap, and for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Why is Jesus waiting so long? I'll tell you. He's waiting so long because he is bringing the salvation of everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He is bringing in, like it talks about in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, the fullness of the Gentiles. Or like he talks about in eleven twenty-six, that all of Israel is to be saved. Those following in the faith of Abraham, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, he's waiting. Peter writes about this, the end of the world and the coming of Christ. And if you understand what patience looks like, this is what he says. He says, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. In God's timetable, it's really been about two days since he's been gone. And then he says this, And the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The reason he hasn't coming back is to make sure that you are believing while you can. No more games. No more playing church. Actually putting your faith in Christ because he is coming back. And he says, I want you to stay alert. You know, in the stock market... If you get some information about something that's taking place in a company that's going to drastically affect stocks for better or worse, you get some insider information, you know, if you act on that, uh, that'll put you in prison. You can pay some pretty serious fines. But when you have inside information as to the future from Jesus, what he's revealed in his word, if you don't act on it, that is utter foolishness. And so Jesus says, I want you to stay alert. I don't want you to be lulled into complacency. I want you to be living in holiness. I want your Bibles to be open, and I want you growing in grace and engaged in my work. So what has God called you to do in your family? What has God called you to do in our church? What's your ministry like? When I ask you that, you're like, I'm involved in doing this for the kingdom. I am making these kind of disciples. You know, if you're like, hey, I'm really interested in taking my next steps, right after service, when you walk out those doors, I would encourage every one of you to take a left just to see the different ways God is at work through Fellowship Bible Church and how you can be connected and be involved. But what is it that Jesus has assigned you to do? Remember that from verse 34? What about with your work as a student, with your financial resources, what is he calling you to do and are you doing it? How are you living in light of Jesus' return? You know, bringing you back to school, there's a big difference 
between a final exam and a pop test. You know, on a final exam, you know what's going to be on it, you know the date, where it's going to be, right? And, you know, like the teacher would probably give you a study guide. Listen, if you, if you bomb your final exam, that's kind of on you, all right? You had all the material. You just didn't study. But on a pop test, that's a little different. When the teacher just kind of walks in and says, you know, listen, I told you at the beginning of semester, at some point, I'm going to give you a pop test. Today's the day. Phones down, close the books, take that laptop, close it. Here's your test. Friends, if you haven't been keeping up on the reading, you haven't been paying attention in class or going to class, okay, you're not engaged with the material, you're probably going to fail. Friends, Jesus says, I'm coming back. You don't know when, but I want you ready. You see, trusting in Christ, the first coming of Christ, leads to looking to his return. Are you trusting in his first coming? If you are, it leads to looking for his return. You know how this Bible ends, don't you? It ends this way. Revelation chapter 22, verses 20 and 21, he says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Friends, you and I, we're living in light of his return. Let's pray. Lord.